open literature and that he uh, uh, has a dialogue with God. There is some prophecy there in chapter 2. And then the third chapter of Habakkuk is a psalm, a song. And, uh, and so uh, uh, has a lot in common with the, the book of Psalms, as we'll see tonight. And so uh, uh, let's look at uh, this prayer, this song. And then we'll, we'll break it out as we look together. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence, and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation, your bow was made quite ready? Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation, and the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land with indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own errors, arrows, the head of his villages, they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of your great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the, way of, in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people... He will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fall, and fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like the deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. All right, so we've talked about the fact while you know, Habakkuk calls himself a prophet and his work is included in the midst of the minor prophets, it doesn't contain a lot of prophecy. It's mostly a dialogue between uh, the man and the Lord. As Habakkuk cries out to God because of, uh, uh, he doesn't understand God's ways in the world. He does not understand... Uh, God's justice, and he does not understand God's timing. 
and the book ends with a prayer, a song, a psalm. And, uh, uh, you know, like several of the psalms, it's called a, a prayer. And like 55 of the psalms, it's designated to the chief musician. Uh, in the book of Psalms, 55 of them say uh, to the chief musician or to the choir master, to the, uh, to the music director, uh, giving us indication that this song was given to be sung in public worship. Uh, and it, to be sung in public worship with stringed instruments. And uh, in, in the 55 Psalms where this designation is used, it's at the beginning in the superscription to the chief musician, but here in Habakkuk it comes at the end. And so, uh, uh, and like many of the Psalms, it also contains this word, Selah. It uses the term Selah, which... Uh, is most likely a musical term, but the exact meaning of it is unknown. And it occurs 71 times in the book of Psalms, the word Selah, and three times here in the third chapter of Habakkuk. And uh, uh, many scholars think that this word uh, means to, it's just a musical term that means to pause or to reflect it's a word that uh, uh, shows up in a place where you might start a new paragraph. It introduces a new thought. And so it, it might be an instruction to, to pause and to reflect over the words that you've just sung. Or it could be a musical term that, you know, this, uh, this psalm is to the chief musician to be played with string instruments. And so maybe uh, Salah means that the singers will pause and the musicians will simply play an interlude as they reflect on the words. But the, uh, the bottom line is, nobody really knows what this word means. And uh, there is no translation into English. And so what this word actually is, is a transliteration. A transliteration. And so a, a translation is when the uh, editors of our English Bible will take the Hebrew word in this case, or the Greek word in the New Testament, and a, a substitute an appropriate English word for the Hebrew word. Uh, they, they recognize, they know the meaning of the Hebrew word because of its context, because of its usage, because of uh, 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 different definitions or etymology of the word, and so they will substitute a... English word for the Hebrew word, and the vast majority of the words in the Old Testament are translated words. But Selah is a transliteration, and, and, a, and a transliteration happens when the word cannot be translated into English because we don't know the uh, we don't know what it means. <laughs> so there's no corresponding English word because we don't know the meaning of the Hebrew word. So we we can't substitute a word, and so what the editors will do is they will simply use English letters to approximate as nearly as possible the sound of the word so that we can read it and pronounce it. And so uh, the word selah is a transliteration, and, uh, and, and as close as possible, they have reproduced or created an English word that reproduces the Hebrew word because we couldn't substitute a word because we don't know what it means. Uh, and perhaps the most, the, the most uh, familiar transliteration 
is the word hallelujah. The word hallelujah is made up of two Hebrew words, hallel and yah. And hallel means praise, and yah is part of the covenant name of Lord. And so the word hallelujah means praise the Lord. And uh, the... Uh, in some translations, instead of translating the word hallelujah, uh, praise the Lord, the English translations decide to keep the Hebrew uh, and uh, sound it out as it would sound in the original Hebrew, and it's become an English word and a meaningful and powerful word of praise. And so the transliteration hallelujah actually has become an English word, and we use that, we sing that, we use that in worship and recognize that it means that we are praising the Lord. And a popular transliterated word in the New Testament is the word baptize. The Greek word baptizo, and uh, it was translate, t- transliterated maybe not for a, a good reason, uh, but you, when, when they were translating the New Testament, that was authorized by King James, who happened to be an Anglican, the Church of England, well, they came across the word baptizo, and they uh, knew that that word meant to submerge or to immerse. And uh, they also knew that King James would not look favorably upon a translation that called into question the practices of the Church of England. And so the translators really struggle. Well, what are we going to do with this word baptize, baptizo? What are we going to do with that, that word? We can't translate it immerse or submerge because that would contradict the teaching of the Church of England. King James would not look favorably upon that. In fact, he might execute us for that. So we can't do that. What do we do? Oh, let's just transliterate it. Let's make an English word, baptize, that can be interpreted however the King of England wants to interpret it. And so the word baptizo was transliterated, baptized, and has become an English word that we as Baptists know means to immerse or to submerge. (laughs) Um, But uh, other people interpret baptism to mean pour or sprinkle. Uh, So uh, that's a lesson on transliteration. Um, And selah is simply a transliteration because we don't know We don't know what the word actually means. And so our English translators just lifted it out of the Hebrew, gave it English letters and English pronunciations so we can pronounce it the same way that the uh, 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 Hebrews would have pronounced it when they read this in its original language. But unlike hallelujah, we don't know the origin. We don't know the etymology. We can't break out the... uh, the, the parts like we did with hallelujah, and so we simply uh, uh, read the word and pronounce it the same way that uh, Habakkuk would have pronounced it when he read it and the original readers would have read it. Uh, but we also believe about the scripture that every word of the Bible is a word that has been breathed out by God, right? We believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture, that all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. We believe that the Bible does not just contain the Word of God, but it contains the very words of God. And so every word matters, even the ones that we can't fully understand. And so we recognize that God has breathed out this Word, 
We don't know what it means, but I think that's also kind of an important truth. Uh, God is infinite, and we are finite. And there are many aspects of God's character. You know, on Sunday night, we've been talking about God's attributes. And every time we talk about one of God's attributes, we kind of wrestle with uh, that infinite attribute. And, uh, we, you know, we, we wrestle with, with God's omnipotence and omniscience and God's wisdom. And, and, uh, uh, and, and it's hard for our little human brains to grasp the totality of who God is, even in each of those attributes. We can study those attributes, we can break them out, but we can't fully grasp what that attribute means and how that attribute plays out in the character of God and how that attribute plays out uh, in relationship to his other attributes. Uh, it staggers our imagination every time we try to, try to think about who God is. And, uh, and so when we think of this word, a word that is breathed out by God that we don't understand, it reminds us that there are many aspects of God's character that we can't understand. There's things about Him that we can't fully grasp. And so it makes sense that there will be words that God breathed out that we can't fully understand. And uh, you know, like I said, many, many scholars think that, uh, that this word is a musical term that means to pause or reflect. And, it, and, uh, and, and that's you know, appropriate for us even when we don't need know exactly what it means. And so it, when we read through the Scripture and we see that word Selah, we can pause and reflect on the immense wonders of God. The fact that even though He has made Himself known to us in so many ways and so many words, there, there's always going to be elements of God's character that we can't understand. And uh, uh, we, we see this word Selah and we Remind ourselves that though we live in a world where there's an abundance of information, uh, we, we crave after answers, we, we want knowledge, and, you know, in my hand I've got more access to more information than uh, is, is present in the whole library down, down the road, you know, that whole building full of books. I've got more information right here than is contained in that building. Um, and uh, we, we want all this information, and yet... Even with all the information that's available to us, God is so immense and God is so wonderful. God is so majestic. God is so infinite that we cannot fully grasp uh, all of his attributes. There will always be truth about God that I simply cannot know. Um, and so this term can uh, remind us of that and remind us that even with all that we have in the Scripture... Revealing God to us, there will always be an aspect of mystery, an aspect of God's character that we don't know. And, and in Colossians, in the New Testament, Paul expresses that his desire for the Christians in Colossae and in Laodicea is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so even with all that's revealed, there's an element of mystery and uh, uh, an element of, of, of things that we will not understand. And so that, that word Selah reminds us of our limited uh, humanity and the fact that we can't grasp everything that is about God. And I've just spent 750 words talking about a word that we don't know the meaning of. But... <laughs> but uh, but God is, uh, is immense and He's infinite. And, 
and so we put that word Selah in the scripture because every word is a word that's breathed out by God even though we might not fully understand it. it as is the word Shiganoth, which is there in verse 1. That is another word that we do not know what it means. And it only occurs where, where uh, uh, Selah, how many times I say it occurred? Like 55 times. Uh, this word only occurs once in this form, but David actually uses this word in Psalm 7, uh, but he uses, this is uh, singular, David uses the plural um, in Psalm 7, and um, my English translator translated that meditation, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord, uh, but the, the real word is shiganon, and again, we don't know the exact meaning of that word. Again, it could probably be a musical term, maybe that describes the type of song that this is, a, uh, a, a contemplation of the glory of God, but that's just based on the context of this in Psalm 7. Um, and so, uh, so that's another word that we don't, uh, don't know the meaning of. And so our English translators simply took that word and uh, gave it Hebrew, uh, English letters to approximate as much as they could the Hebrew. That is a transliteration as well that we don't know the meaning of. And so these, uh, this word, the, the, a prayer of the Habakkuk the prophet, and then by the end, to the chief musician, we see that this is a song that was given to be sung in public worship accompanied by strung, stringed instruments. And, uh, and this ending is actually very appropriate to the, to the prophecy, to the book of Habakkuk. It's a very logical conclusion to the book. You remember in the beginning, Habakkuk uh, complained about the injustice within Jude Judah. And, he, and he, he, he complained about the violence that was all around him. And he cried out to God, and God was silent. God didn't answer. And uh, God seemed to be ignoring all of the violence and the injustice that was going on around the prophet. And he cried out to the Lord, and finally the Lord said, I am at work, and, uh, uh, the, and, and God said that he was going to respond to the injustice in Judah by sending the Chaldeans, who were more violent and more unjust than the Judeans, and uh, Habakkuk thought that maybe the solution was worse than the problem. <laughs> he continued to cry out to the Lord, and ultimately... Habakkuk came to the conclusion in chapter 2, verse 4, that the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. He won't always understand what God allows. He won't always understand what God does. He won't always understand God's timing. He won't always understand the circumstances that he's experiencing in context of the sovereignty of God. If God is good and holy, why can he tolerate injustice and violence? And if God is holy and just, how can he raise up uh, uh, the Chaldeans to come and judge his people? He will not always understand what God does, but he must learn to trust God. He must learn to trust that even though he can't see it, God will always do what is just and what is good and what is right. And, uh, and so he comes to that realization in chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. And we talked in detail about that particular verse. And then the, the, the actual prophecy follows that realization in verses uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 20. 
He actually is, is the prophetic part of the, the book where he announces the woes, a series of woes. He declares the downfall of the wicked, uh, both because their actions contain the seeds of their own destruction. Uh, you reap, but also he prophesies the Lord's direct action against the injustice and the violence, both of the Judeans and the Chaldeans. Um, and so uh, Habakkuk outlines the certainty of God's action, but gives no timetable for that action, uh, stressing the importance that the righteous will live by faith. So those first two sections of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's complaint and Habakkuk's prophecy, emphasize the importance of living by faith and acknowledging that God's justice and righteousness will ultimately be revealed. So uh, what are we doing between? We, we live by faith and we wait for God's justice. What do, what do we do in that time of tension when we are trusting the Lord and yet we are waiting? Well, that's the subject of chapter 3. Uh, the prophet calls it a prayer. Uh, he also indicates to us that it is a song. It is to the chief musician to be sung in the public worship of God's people with the stringed instruments. And uh, he calls it a prayer. And actually there is only one petition. Most of this is the proclamation, the declaration of the actions and the characteristics of God. The only, the only petition, the only request in this prayer is verse 2. Uh, o Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, make uh, remember mercy. And so he makes three petitions there in verse 2. Maintain life, revive your work, make your ways known, and in your wrath, remember mercy are the three petitions in verse 2. The rest is a prayer of praise where the prophet declares the actions of the Lord uh, on behalf of his people, and he calls the people to trust and to rejoice in God as the rescuer and the deliverer of his people. And when we get to chapter 3, Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed at all from chapter two, chapter 1, verse 1. The circumstances have not changed. He still lives in the midst of a society that is unjust and where there is violence and uh, circumstances that he doesn't understand. Uh, he, he sees... Over the horizon, the coming Chaldean army that's going to come and bring God's judgment. But from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 1, his circumstances have not changed at all. But what has changed is God has spoken and he has realized that the just will live by faith. That he will not always have the answers. He has been clearly told that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But he knows in spite of the circumstances, God is faithful and God's justice will eventually come. And he prays. And he praises. And his prayer of praise becomes a challenge for those who hear to trust uh, in, in that reality that God is faithful and his justice will eventually come. And so he introduces this song. In chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Uh, and so this is a prayer to God, and it is also a prophetic word from God to us. This is an inspired prayer, and inspired him, because Habakkuk in his role as a prophet 
is praying to God, but he's praying inspired words. And so it is a prophetic word to us. And uh, as we see at the end, this is a song that's to be sung by the children of Israel, uh, to be sung during the coming days of distress. And that's actually a, a practice that goes all the way back to Moses. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Actually 31, 31 and 32. And you remember Deuteronomy is the uh, summation of the law, the teachings of Moses. Moses has brought, the uh, God has brought the children of Israel to the boundaries, to the border of the promised land. He has brought them through the leadership, uh, you know, mediated his leadership through Moses. Moses has brought them to the, to the shores of the uh, promised land, the boundaries of the promised land. And Moses is not going to enter the promised land. He's not going to lead the people into the promised land because of his, his sin. And, uh, and so he will bring them to the boundaries. He will preach the book of Deuteronomy. And then he will die and be buried. And Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy, the, the summation, the repetition of the law of Moses, and then Moses is making preparations to die. And one of the last things that he does is he writes a song. He writes a song. And in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 19, God tells him, Deuteronomy 31, 19, Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve me and serve them, and they will provoke me and, I, and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And then chapter 32 has actually the words of the psalm. And so what Habakkuk does, writing a song for the children of Israel to sing during the days of their distress is a practice that goes as far back as Moses. One of, his very, one of Moses' very last acts is to write a song that God told him to write as a means of teaching their children about the ways of God. And this song is given specifically in anticipation of their disobedience. And it's a song that they were to remember and to, uh, to help them teach the truth about God. And I know as a, as a parent, one of the most effective ways to teach truth to our children was to set that truth to music and to, uh, to teach them the song. That's how our, our kids learn the books of the Bible, by setting it to music and singing uh, the, the, the books of the Bible and singing Bible verses. And so, uh, so music is a powerful way for truth to be taught. And that's one of the reasons that we sing in worship. That, that singing is an essential part of worship. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about singing in public worship today. And singing is an, is an important part, an essential part of public worship. God tells us how He is to be worshipped, and He is to be worshipped with, with singing. Because setting truth to music helps us to remember the truths of God 
and gives us an effective way to teach ourselves, to teach our children. And, and chances are a lot of the theology, a lot of the doctrine that you learned, uh, you learned from singing. And you learned from singing those great hymns of our faith uh, over and over through the years. And uh, you might be able to more quickly sing doctrine than you could quote scriptures from doctrine uh, because they've been set to, to music. And so music is an effective way for us to teach truth. Not only that, music gives us an effective way to voice our praise to God and give witness to His attributes and His characteristics and His mighty works. And you know, nowadays it's not real popular to sing about our sin. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, uh, Deuteronomy, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, you look at Habakkuk, uh, you see God's wrath and you see God's judgment and you see uh, them singing about um, their sin and God's judgment, God's displeasure uh, at their, their sin and then ultimately God's deliverance. And so music gives us an effective way to voice our praise to God, to give witness to His attributes and His characteristics and His mighty works. Music also gives us an effective way to encourage one another. And so when we sing in worship, we're singing to God. We're singing praises to God. And we, we sing songs of thanksgiving. But we also sing in order to encourage one another about the, the, the characteristics and the attributes of, of God. And so we sing as, as a way of an encouragement to encourage one another in the, in the truth of God. In the New Testament, we're commanded to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so music is an important and essential part of worship. It's a way to teach truth. It's a way to put, put words to our praise to God. It's a way for us to encourage one another. And it's a way for us to declare the gospel to the world through our singing. And so singing is an important part of public worship. In Habakkuk, in chapter 3, he, 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 uh, he, he sings to God. He, this is a prayer, it's a psalm, and it's a word of prophecy. And Habakkuk speaks to God. He had, he had cried out to God wondering why uh, he, he did not appear to be working in his day. He had heard of God's great acts in the past and wondered why uh, God was, didn't appear to be acting in the present. Uh, he, he, he had cried out to the Lord, and when God answered Habakkuk, Habakkuk became afraid. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. When God answered Habakkuk, Habakkuk became afraid. He, he, he trusted in the Lord, and he didn't really understand the Lord's answer that He was going to send the Chaldeans uh, to, to be the instrument of His wrath and His judgment against His people, uh, He became afraid, and yet Habakkuk trusts the Lord and asked Him to revive His works. Revive your works in the midst of the years. Uh, do it again. I've, I've heard of how you have delivered your people in the past, and I ask that you Revive your works in the midst of the years that you do it again, that you deliver your people, that you maintain life, that you bring, uh, you bring life. And he wants to see God's justice. And he wants him to make his works known in the midst of years, make it known. He wants 
for both those who have suffered injustice and for those who've been the practicers of injustice, the perpetrators of injustice, to come and know the Lord's work. Even though their experience of God's work will be very different, those who have experienced injustice will experience deliverance. Those who are perpetrators of injustice will experience His wrath. Uh, Habakkuk asked that His work would be made known. That those who, uh, uh, both those who had suffered injustice and those who had perpetrated injustice would see the Lord's work. And the prophet is afraid when he hears that the Lord's favored nation, His chosen people, will experience His discipline. He, he cried out, How long will you tolerate justice and violence? God said, I'm bringing the Chaldeans to be the instrument of my wrath. And now he was afraid. And he asked three things, that God would sustain life, that He would deliver His people, that He would make His works known. And then, in number three, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And so he knows that there are those who are suffering injustice, those who are perpetrating injustice, but Habakkuk also knows ultimately that there is none that is righteous, not even one. There is none that can stand in the day of the Lord's just wrath unless the Lord chooses to be merciful. There is none that is righteous. There is none that deserves salvation. There is none that deserves deliverance. Because all have sinned and all fall short of God's, God's holiness, God's glory. There's none that can stand in the day of the Lord's just wrath unless the Lord chooses to be merciful, unless He chooses to show mercy, compassion to those in distress, unless He chooses to withhold the judgment that is deserved because of sin. Nothing but the undeserved mercy of the Lord will be able to sustain God's people through the difficult days that are ahead. And so Habakkuk asks in this prayer, in wrath, remember mercy. And you know, one of the great battle cries of humans is that's not fair. We demand justice. We, want, we long to see justice done. We, we, want to see every, we want everybody to get what they deserve. And we, we learn that emotion very early in life, right there in the nursery. We, we desire justice. We want everything to be fair. Uh, everybody should get the same number of cookies, and no one should, and everybody should get the same amount of watered-down Kool-Aid in Bible school. No one should be allowed to grab somebody else's toy. <laughs> you know, we, we learn justice. We want justice. We want fairness. And one of the first things that we learn how to say, one of the first sentences we learn is it's not fair, right? <laughs> it's not fair. We want justice, we think. But Habakkuk reminds us we really don't want justice. We don't want fair from God. We want God to remember mercy in the middle of His wrath. Uh, Habakkuk reminds us we don't want fair from God. If we got fair, if we got what we deserved, we'd all be dead. We'd all be in hell. We, we, we want to see God's wrath on the unjust, but when we're honest, we see that we are also deserving of His wrath. If we got fair from God the very first time we knew what we ought to do and we chose not to do it, we would be in hell. If we got fair from God the very first time we knew what we ought not do and we chose to do it, we would be in hell. But fortunately, God is merciful. 
He does not always give us what we deserve. And we don't want fair from God. We want mercy. And God's mercy, He withholds the wrath that we deserve, that which we have earned. And when God is merciful, He also makes grace available to us. Uh, He makes grace available. And and mercy, God shows His kindness to those who are in distress. And in His grace, He shows His kindness to those who deserve only wrath, who deserve only punishment. In mercy, He withholds what we deserve. In grace, He gives what we cannot deserve, what we do not deserve. And that's possible because Jesus took the wrath we deserve. God is just and He must punish sin. But God is also merciful and gracious and He desires to show kindness and goodness to those who are in distress and deserve only wrath. And so God's plan satisfied wrath and mercy. His plan of redemption is that God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus would become a man, live a sinless life, then die on the cross and satisfy God's wrath. Satisfy His wrath when He died on the cross. Satisfy the wrath that we deserve. Satisfy God's holy justice. And God's wrath was satisfied. And in His wrath, He remembers mercy. He raised Jesus from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted, that His wrath has been turned away from all who believe. And now the call goes out to us to turn from sin and trust in Jesus and be saved from the wrath that is to come. And when we turn to Jesus, we're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we can sing of God's amazing grace and His works toward us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can sing that in God's wrath He remembered mercy. And we can sing declaring the great mystery, the great grace of God that is available to us in Christ Jesus. We can sing of His works of deliverance. We can sing of His power and His majesty. We can declare His praises to Him, songs of encouragement to one another, and the gospel message to the world that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I'm see. And uh, and music is a powerful way for us to declare the mercy of God. And so Habakkuk begins to sing a song, uh, a song that is a prayer, asking God to preserve life, to make His ways known, and in His wrath to remember mercy. It's a prayer to God, but it's also a declaration of a prophetic word to us about the character and work of God, and it's also a song to be sung by God's people as they endure the distress and as they find hope and helping God as they wait for His deliverance. All right, questions about those two verses? (laughs) Selah. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) Did you really? All right. All right. Any thoughts about singing? The importance of music and worship? importance of being able to teach truth, declare truth uh, to God, to one another, and to the world. All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of music, and Lord, how uh, you have given that great gift to help us to learn, 
and to declare and to proclaim and to praise. Lord, we, we thank you for the great gift of music to be used in worship and in proclamation and in teaching. And Lord, we pray that you find us faithful and that we be committed to uh, ensuring that the things that we sing are declarations and proclamations of your truth. And Lord, we pray that when we sing, it would not just be out of tradition or habit, or out of memorization, but it would be an act of worship as we sing from our hearts and we proclaim your glorious and gracious acts and your gracious works. And Lord, we pray that in our singing, you would uh, send forth your word and that it would accomplish the purpose of learning, of encouragement, of edification, and even evangelism as we sing of your truth, as we meet together to worship. And Lord, we're thankful for your mercy and your grace that is available to us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we're thankful that your acceptance of us is not based on our performance, but your kindness to us, your mercy to us in Christ. And we thank you that in your wrath you have remembered mercy. And that Jesus turned away your wrath so that we might receive your grace. And we pray that you... Uh, you grant us the grace to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you.